The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 319 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is care and treatment for advanced Alzheimer disease. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disorder that seriously affects the person's ability to carry out daily activities. One major challenge is care and treatment for persons whose advanced Alzheimer's disease is associated with high-risk behaviors such as aggression. And to complicate this challenge, treatment by medications became controversial in 2014 when a newspaper article commented on a health ministry study which found that nearly half of Ontario Canada nursing home residents aged 65 to 79 were being given what the article called dangerous drugs. Another major challenge for care and treatment for persons with advanced Alzheimer's disease arises when the persons have serious problems making decisions. Now, to complicate this challenge, controversy arose also in 2014 when media reports revealed how the older part of a facility for seniors in the Quebec, Canada village of Lille Verte was ravaged by fire, killing an estimated 32 of the residents. The fire ravaged part wasn't required to have automatic sprinklers, that's fire sprinklers, because enough of the residents were deemed autonomous and therefore sufficiently able to make decisions in their own best interests. And these two challenges for care and treatment is why our topic, care and treatment for advanced Alzheimer's disease, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. Uh, Michael is a medical professor, ethicist, and one of Canada's best-known geriatricians. He's published several books, including Late Stage Dementia, Promoting Comfort, Compassion and Care, Moments That Matter, Cases in Ethical Elder Care, Parenting Your Parents, and his memoir, Brooklyn Beginnings, A Geriatrician's Odyssey. His work to advance the understanding of aging, ethics, and end-of-life care is valued by public and professional audiences. Born in the United States, his educational and training experiences span the United States, Scotland, Israel, and Canada. He's currently the Medical Program Director of Palliative Care at 
Baycrest Health Sciences and a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for inviting me again. Right. Now, please tell us a little bit more about your clinical work as it relates to advanced Alzheimer's disease. Michael? First of all, I like to really use the word dementia because that includes the whole range of conditions of which Alzheimer's is only one that cause problems in cognition, decision-making, behavior. And in fact, it's almost impossible these days to differentiate, you know, pure Alzheimer's from a mixture, which is what affects most people. So I prefer using the word dementia to describe the population we're dealing with. Um, In my practice, uh, I work in a geriatric center at this point. I don't work anymore in the acute setting, acute hospital setting. My office practice, my ambulatory clinic, is I would say 90% uh, deals with people who come to me because of one form of dementia or another uh, associated with a whole range of medical conditions that come as part of the repertoire of anybody in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and most of my patients are above 80. So I see lots of people with dementia of all kinds uh, and uh, accompanied by various other medical conditions. In addition, because of my position in this large uh, long-term care geriatric center, even though I'm the medical program director of palliative care, I interface with my colleagues and with all kinds of committees uh, that have to make decisions about the population here, which includes very many people with uh, dementia. And because of my role in medical ethics, many of the issues that come up related to uh, people with dementia end up coming in front of me as well. Besides that part of my work, for years I worked, uh, I was a member of the coroner's committee of the province of Ontario that dealt with geriatrics and long-term care, and many of the biggest cases and challenges that we had to address of cases that were brought to the coroner's committee for review were in people who, among other things, uh, suffered from dementia and often were involved in activities and undertakings and bad outcomes, including deaths, related to the dementia. Right. Short summary. Very good. Now, let's, let me ask you now to highlight for us the most serious medical and social challenges arising from high-risk behaviors associated with dementia, which includes, as you've said, advanced Alzheimer's disease. Michael? Yeah, I would say that looking at it through, you know, the various lenses in which I've worked, most people and their families can deal with the simplest component, but the most recognizable of dementia, which is loss of memory ability and recall. Although that seems to be a hallmark, that in itself does not cause major problems in care. There are various ways that families and institutions deal with forgetfulness and repetitiveness. Um, That's not as hard, and it's not particularly dangerous other than something we see, and that's often how people present, in the home setting when other things they forget, and that's often one of the reasons it comes to the attention of people, they forget that the stove was on, that the water was running, that they had to do something as part of the normal safety and security of the home that led to 
you know, a bad outcome. I mean, the worst ones are, for example, fires and floods and sometimes accidents that affect them because they forgot that when they plugged in the lamps the night before, which they shouldn't have anyway, the wire across the floor was one that they might trip over. But forgetfulness, although we we kind of think of that as the hallmark of dementia, that's why these evaluation centers are called memory clinics, the real challenge comes when there are behavioral problems, which are now called responsive behaviors, um, for whatever reasons, we used to call it uh, behavioral psychiatric disorders of dementia, BPSD. So when people develop, and it's aggression, agitation, uh, uncontrollable wandering, um, combativeness, uh, these are the challenges that make it very difficult for families to continue looking after their loved one at home which many would like to do if they could, and for institutions, which you have to remember, become a, in a sense, an ultra-filtrate. In other words, one of the criteria for getting into a long-term care facility is having behavioral problems. And therefore, what you're doing is congregating many, many people with behavioral problems in the same place. And that's an institution. And therefore, it's not unreasonable to expect that in such a place, many people may require treatment, including medications, for what it is that brought them in. And therefore, the the statistics about the numbers are a a little bit misleading. Right. Now, we're going to come back to that in the next segment to say more about that. But let's just ask you quickly about the most serious medical and social challenges that arise when persons with dementia, advanced Alzheimer's disease, have serious problems making decisions. Michael? The problem with decisions, when somebody is no longer what we call capable, in other words, understands and appreciates, then one has to be very careful what decisions they are expected to or allowed to make. That enters often into the medical legal world because decisions get made which then become challenged by stakeholders. I I get involved with some of these medical legal cases. I'm very, very selective. But when somebody is, you might say, influenced to change a will or a deed uh, on a property only to find that the person who now is the beneficiary was not the person who previously was. Other decisions that sometimes take a while to realize that there's a problem is people making investments and are taken advantage of by people who are quite happy that they can be influenced about their investments um, because they no longer really understand and appreciate what's going on. Uh, Sometimes it's very subtle. It could be incremental so that it's not appreciated by everybody, but decisions and judgment can be a problem. On the other hand, there are people with severe dementia who can make certain decisions, and they shouldn't be deprived of them, of making those decisions. And they may be personal decisions, such as what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, One of the challenges is where you're going to live. Do you really understand and appreciate the risks and dangers of living where you're living? You may not. 
and therefore you may say, I do not want to leave my home when it's no longer tenable or safe to stay at home. So that's the range of kind of uh, challenges that occur in the decision-making mode. Just to follow up on, on that and the previous question about yeah. dementia and what I turned high-risk behaviors, you termed it something yeah. else. Is there any linkage between sort of losing one's memory and losing one's ability to make decisions that make sense? What do you think? Well, there is a connection. I mean, you know, memory is a funny thing. The way we make decisions in some ways depends on our remembering associations. So that, for example, I'm, I'm using this as a try to obvious example. If you don't remember that ownership, the concept of ownership, means that you as an individual have some legal right to something, and you don't remember that, in fact, you own something because of something that's happened, you may not be able to make a decision about transferring ownership. Or if you do make a decision about transferring ownership, you may not remember that you made it. Yeah. And it's interesting, some of the legal cases I've been involved with really uh, sort of circled around that because whoever was asking the questions to the person who was transferring ownership wasn't asking the right questions because had they asked the right questions, they would have discovered that 10 minutes after a decision was made, the person no longer remembered that they made that decision. Yeah. Very, very clear and very important. Now, we've reached the point where we're going to take the break. This is where I always say we need to pay the rent, so we'll do that now. Um, but we're going to be coming back to more of discussion along these lines. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We'll be back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. If you're single or in a relationship, love can be hard to find. That's right. Even if you are in a relationship... Listen for Conscious Soulmates with Susan Ortolano to find out more. You'll learn how to find your way into a meaningful relationship or to make the one you're in a successful one. Through the wisdom of Susan and her guests, you'll discover what inside yourself is keeping you from being happy and in love. Conscious Soulmates is broadcast live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. 
If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is care and treatment for advanced Alzheimer disease. Now, let's talk about the use of medications and their alternatives mm. in the treatment and control of high-risk behaviors in advanced Alzheimer's disease, and that is dementia as a whole, if that still fits. So what types of medications, Michael, are used to treat or control these high-risk behaviors? And in general, how effective are these medications? Yeah, Michael? I mean, like almost anything else in medicine, there's a range of options of treatment of which medication is often the core of the option. Sometimes there are other things you do. So, for example, there are conditions for which you have either medication or surgery as a way of treating. For behavioral disturbances in dementia, before one uses medication per se, usually you look for triggering events, what's the nature of the activity, is it in response to an external stimulus, because if you find that to be the case, you may be able to remove that stimulus and change the behavior. Or you may find that the person is on another medication for another condition that has as an adverse reaction certain kinds of propensity to behavioral um, actions. Now, that doesn't happen too often. So when you're stuck with behavior that is interfering with the person's ability to stay where they are, to be safe, or to protect other people from aggressive, agitated outbursts, or that I see often in a home situation where the caregiver can no longer provide care because it's refused, the person becomes combative, they can't keep, uh, let's say, a personal support worker because they keep quitting because the person becomes agitated and aggressive, sometimes combative. Then you say, okay, what are the options in medications? In the old days, and I'll call them the bad old days because they're not that many years ago, and I'm old enough to remember them, the only medications we had were heavy sedatives, barbiturates. Now, those medications basically put you to sleep, or if not to sleep, close to asleep. And then gradually, gradually over the decades, and I remember when the first class of drugs came out, and these were called the neuroleptics, were used first for people with schizophrenia, who often also get agitated, sometimes have hallucinations and delusions, which people with dementia and behavioral uh, problems often get. And we found that that class of medications often worked in people with dementia. And with the development of newer and newer drugs, we came up with a class of drugs that's called atypical um, antipsychotics. Now, again, as in the development of the other drugs, the first population they were used for were people with schizophrenia, because for them, hallucinations and delusions are paramount and often interfere with their ability to function at all. And then people started 
doing studies and looking at these same class of drugs in people with agitation and combativeness and aggression in dementia and found that in a proportion of people, these medications, often in very much smaller doses, worked. So what we're left with is a class of medications which initially was designed for another population, which is often the case, but through medical research, it's found to be effective in this population and maybe other populations, which we're not going to get into, and therefore the medications start being used. Now, the fact that those newspaper articles, and I'm always very leery of a newspaper article as defining the issue, just because it's a very complicated issue. And some of the statements, and I read those newspaper articles, really I found, I'd say medically um, erroneous, but also terribly frightening and misleading. Uh, and I'll give you an example. You had statements saying these drugs were being used and they were not being used in a way that is indicated by the um, uh, um, contract that is made with the drug company and Health Canada when a drug is released. It's called off-label. Well, many medications we use are used off-label, and that's because of the nature of getting a license to use a drug. You get it for a use, and then it may take years until other uses come up, and most pharmaceutical companies don't reapply for new indications. And that's because it's expensive, it's cumbersome, and the literature, the medical literature, supports those uses. So it's very common, and it's meaningless in terms of proper medical use to say it's used off-label. Right. So that was number one. The other thing is they say these drugs are dangerous. Well, I'll agree. These drugs and almost every other drug we use have potential dangers. The actual danger compared to the condition is small because you have to remember we're treating a very dangerous condition. When I was on the coroner's committee, we dealt with deaths caused by aggressive combative people who were attempted to be treated with these drugs, but for whatever reason, it was either not enough or they weren't responsive, and the result was a death, a death caused by, you know, some act of uh, unmedic, what do you call it, uh, um, premeditated. It was, these people sometimes can't help what they're doing. They're easily provoked. So you have to put it in a context. The context is what are the risks, what are the benefits, what's the dosage, whether you stop the drugs after a while or look for a lower dose. Like any other drug, you have to monitor the effect of the drug and the situation that you're dealing with. Right. Now, I'm going to go straight into the question now about family caregivers yeah. caring for family members with dementias of advanced Alzheimer's. Now, they may be caring for them at home or they yes. may be caring for them in a facility of some kind. Yes. Now, what should family caregivers know um, about the kind of things you've been talking about, which are obviously very complicated? In other words, what do you want them to know about or find out about? Michael? Well, first of all, if there is a behavior that seems to be potentially dangerous or one that's really affecting their ability to be looked after. We'll start off at home because that's what often precipitates admission to a long-term care facility because even the best of families, and I've seen marvelous families, say we can't do it anymore. So 
when that happens, the decision has to be made, do we try to keep them at home using medication that's going to change their behavior, we hope? And if so, what are the parameters of use? How are you going to do it? What's the time frame? And what else are you going to do to try to mitigate the behaviors? And usually most of us in practice come up with, you might say, a multivariate equation. We'll start with the medication, use a low dose, gradually increase it, maybe use two drugs that work um, synergistically together, change the environment, and then look at things that are what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions that may help, one of which, which is becoming very popular and of interest is music. We've shown that music can have a very beneficial effect on people with dementia, especially who are having behavioral problems. And the real challenge in the Alzheimer's Society of Toronto is undertaking a major project in that. The real challenge is finding the right music, and the right music means that person's music. So you have to know their history and then providing it personally, not as background music. So they're being provided with a little iPod, with earphones, and if it's the right music put on at the right time, that might quell some of the agitation. There are other things as well. Some people who get agitated respond well to pets, you know, because they're soothing. Um, Some people respond to massage. So you look at all the other options, and if they work, great. If they work without medication, even better. If they work but you still need medication, that's fine. That's a combination. But once the decision is made that you can't do it anymore, for whatever reason, and the person is then moved into, I'll use either a long-term care facility or retirement home, depending on the situation, it still may be necessary to use some medication to protect the person themselves because of bad outcomes that can happen to them, and others if they happen to have um, that propensity to be aggressive to others. And that becomes part of a communal commitment. You can't have other people at risk because you don't want your mother medicated. Right. Now, I'm just going to add a very little comment um, about an experience on this show. I interviewed uh, um, a firefighter, a Canadian firefighter, whose co-guest was an American professor who was looking at men as family caregivers. And uh, when we came to ask the firefighter about his story of um, his caring, um, he was very, very... um, open about what he did. But he was also especially interesting when he was talking about his wife and his life together as childhood sweethearts because they loved dancing. After the episode had been broadcast, the firefighter called me to say that he and his wife sat together on the couch listening to the broadcast. And when it came to the parts that he was talking about, their childhood sweethearts and life and their dancing, she snuggled up to him. Yes, And that I think, and this is a very brief question to you, is to say that good memories sometimes can help. Yes. And that's, again, this of, of the, I couldn't go through all of them in first blush, of the non-medication interventions. Music is that kind of thing, because when you say personal music, it's the music that we make associations with that are dear to us. I know in my own, I asked my, my uh, family when this happened, what music would you play for me? 
And yeah. my wife and my two daughters knew the classical music, but they weren't sure of the popular music. Only my eldest daughter figured it out. We all have music with wonderful associations. Storytelling and narrative is also part of that. I have people and I have patients. I saw one just this past Monday who was in the taxi business. Very, very impaired, is at home with a very devoted wife who has her own medical problems, but really it's the daughters that are carrying it, right? And they talked about how they divert him when he gets into his, in quote, state. What do you think they do? They talk about taxis. Uh, They talk about cars. And they did it right in front of me. They said, Dad, what color was was your first taxi? And he started talking about his taxi. Yeah. Right? Michael, Michael, those are superb stories. We're going to have to take the break now, but that is very encouraging yes. as a way of looking at the human side of some of this. So let's take the short break now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley. My guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community so Please stay with us. We'll be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Like so many others, do you put on a game face to the world? The stress of home life, work life, and personal life converge on us on practically a daily basis. Yet, so rarely do we let others see our real selves. And we carry on like we don't have a single problem. We need to connect and to find out we're not alone. Tune into Stories from the Heart of Leadership with host Shamin Sadiq to find out not only what's been created, but the story behind it. Listen live every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your reality and manifest your desires effortlessly. Listen to The Trivetti Effect to find out how raising your level of consciousness can totally transform every aspect of your life. Hosted by Mahendra Kumar Trivedi with Trivedi Master Alice Branton. Our program will spotlight the nearly 4,000 documented scientific studies that have proven the transformational impact of this energy extends beyond humans to all living and even non-living matter. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc. G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is care and treatment for advanced Alzheimer disease. Um, autonomy, which we mentioned before, means having the freedom to make decisions for oneself. Yeah. We know that persons with advanced 
Alzheimer's or dementia may be unable to make decisions that are best for them or for others. So let's talk about the problems with decision making uh, in the context that is dementia or advanced Alzheimer's that we're talking about. So Michael, first, at what point in the progression of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, do problems with the person's decision-making arise? What are the signs that the problems are getting serious? Yeah. And what generally is the medical advice you give? Yeah, see, the thing is, it's not all or nothing. And one of my colleagues years ago who was a geriatric psychiatrist uh, wrote a book, I think it was called When the Mind Fails. And he made a very important point, which I think most of us uh, now accept, and that's decision-making is domain-specific. It means that depends on what the decision is about, you may be capable or not capable of making it. Capable meaning you understand and appreciate. When I'm trying to make the point and I'm teaching, I can say, you may know what you like for breakfast, but you don't know which stock you should still keep. Because the challenge mentally cognitively of those two decisions are very different. You may be able to say that daughter number three standing in front of you is the one you want to make decisions on your behalf, but you may not know which decisions they are that have to be made. So you have to be very, very careful about when you say somebody is capable or not capable. The real question is for what? Now, for example, in Ontario, we have the Healthcare Consent Act. That talks about capacity for medical decisions. It doesn't talk about capacity for financial. That's another section of a different law, testamentary capacity. But when it comes to healthcare decisions, the, the standard is to understand and appreciate the implications of a medical decision. So that really boils down to, in very, very simple terms, oh, I know you want to operate. Yeah, I remember that an operation, I still remember, means cutting, but I cannot for the life of me understand what you're going to be cutting for and what that's going to mean and what the recuperation means and what rehab means and what it means that I'm not going to be able to hold my water anymore. In other words, that's the appreciation. So that we have to be very careful when we look at capacity is what it's about. Capacity for what? You like your steak medium rare, you can still have it medium rare. Right. Now, I want to ask you, at what point in this progression we're talking about do care staff of long-term care facilities themselves begin to recognize that a person is having serious problems with decision-making. And what then are the policies, and I'm using that word very yeah. loosely, that generally kick in at that point relating to the person's care? Yeah, you know, Michael. one of the problems is there's a whole range of facilities, whatever facilities means. But, you know, you have people who move into what we call retirement homes who are perfectly capable of making almost every decision that they have to make, and they've moved into a retirement home just because they don't want to be bothered with their activities of daily living, with cooking and shopping and, and cleaning the house. They just want to, you know, it started off this industry as an offshoot of the hotel industry. You know, they thought, right, we could do this. We'll take people, we'll give them room and board and a really nice thing, and we'll make money, and not realizing that these people are going to deteriorate, and then they have to really start looking after them. But there are people who move into retirement homes, and my late father, when he first moved into his retirement home, had 
I would say mild cognitive impairment, but he could make most of his decisions about most things. He even knew every stock that he had. But as you move along the spectrum from retirement homes to what we call assisted living, which means you need some help, to long-term care facilities, nursing homes, where almost as a requirement for moving in, one of the of the standards is cognitive impairment. So from the get-go, people come in and can't make many of the decisions they have to make, but can make some. And the staff, usually as part of the admission process, determine what their level of decision-making is. And that's really much better than the bad old days, which I remember that once you went in, you made no decisions. And that meant you couldn't even figure out what you wanted for breakfast. So we now, I think, understand that people, even in long-term care, with a admission diagnosis of dementia, although they may need help in many domains, they may need help in bathing, they may need help in dressing, although they may be able to dress themselves, but they may need help in choosing what they're going to put on, or they may need help in making a phone call, uh, but once they're on the phone, they can talk to somebody. The staff learn usually over a short period of time and then ongoing what their abilities and disabilities are. Right. Now, question, it's the same question, but relating to family caregivers who are caring yeah. for family members, you know, in the kind of situations yeah. we've talked about at home in yeah. some kind of facility. What, um, what should they know about recognizing these problems as they grow? And what about they're asking questions. Who do they ask the questions to, or what questions do they ask to the physician or to the facility? Michael? Well, if you're at home and your parent or loved one is being looked after, it's often nowadays more and more by a team of people. It's not just one. So the, the, the various players may have more or less ability or interest or capability of picking up the clues or making a diagnosis of some degree of cognitive impairment, which is the general term we use when the person isn't able to do all things. It can be very subtle. And that's why we do all these tests, mini mental status and MOC, and there's a whole bunch of tests that you do because there isn't a blood test that does it. It's a clinical set of tests, sometimes very complex neuropsychological tests. But usually somebody becomes aware that something's not right. So, you know, what's the example? The person who's called by the bank, the daughter, who says, your mother is in here every day taking out $50 and asking how come there's less money in her bank book. And every day I explain to her that she was here yesterday. And she says, no, I wasn't. Now, the daughter may not be aware of that until somebody brings it up, unless the daughter is also looking at the bank book. So I'll give you an example with my late father. He was living on his own in Brooklyn. My sister was living in Chicago. I was in Toronto. But my father bought his groceries using a credit card that my sister paid. So she got the um, monthly um, summary of charges. So she knew that every week 
he went to the local supermarket and bought groceries. And she began to be suspicious that something wasn't right because the pattern began to change. And then on the visits that we made, we began to notice, for example, that the food that was in the fridge was old or that was duplicated. Like how many um, uh, packages of cream cheese do you need? Each one a week older than the one before, but not eaten. So the clues may be subtle, and then gradually they reach a point that you say, aha, something's wrong. And then either you go for a formal evaluation, which is what most people would or should do, to somebody like a doctor, geriatrician, family doctor with an interest, neurologist, who does a mental status um, evaluation, maybe an occupational therapist, who looks at function and says, you know what, there's some real deficits here, and then decides on diagnosis and intervention and treatment. In your experience, um, generally, how good or not so good are family caregivers at spotting these changes, these these things that aren't right in the fridge? Are they good, um, <laughs> if you like, diagnosticians, or and are they not? And if they're not, what would you recommend them? Yeah, I would say. I'm aware again, of. I would say, for the most part. Families are pretty attentive, if they are attentive families. <laughs> you know, the range of, of families is as wide as uh, humanity, which is why there are so many novels written. But a family that's caring and attentive usually picks up, at some point along the line, the clues that reflect there's something wrong. I know that in my own family, he is, the son's this geriatrician, the daughter is a psychiatric social worker, but it took us a while to put the pieces together, and it really culminated in a birthday dinner. He was living on his own in Brooklyn and seemed to be managing. He was buying groceries. Maybe the pattern was changing. We went out to dinner for his birthday, and my sister and I flew in. His sister that lived in New York came with her husband, and we went, we had dinner, and uh, I don't know who was going to the bathroom where he went to the bathroom, he came back, and he said, how did I get here? Now, at another time, that may have been, did I come here by car, and who's driving, but he really did not remember the fact that we were there for a birthday dinner. Right. And that coupled with the fact that his house, he was always, I will use the word, not very neat. But his house was becoming a disaster. Okay, my mother died, but that was already years ago. But the house was becoming a disaster. And we both decided, my sister and I, that it could no longer, we always respected him, but he no longer was capable of living on his own. And we had this sit down with him. We said, Daddy, you can't really live on your own. We're going to have to find a place you live. And my sister said, Daddy, there are mouse droppings everywhere. And he said, and this was his humor, said, they are very amusing, you know, entertaining. Yeah. But it was clear he could no longer manage. So it yeah. took a while, even from two children who were knowledgeable, but we didn't live with him. Quite. So we saw him intermittently. So it depends on the situation. Right. Perfectly fair. Now, 
We're going to take the break again. This is Dr. Gordon Asley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Question. What's working and what's not working in your life? Though we resolve each year to do things differently, and we want what's great for our businesses, our relationships, our health, and more. We don't always know where to turn when life gets tough. That's where Leading Life Large with host Rob Braun comes in. Our show challenges you to reevaluate where you are and keep pushing your way to the success you desire. If you want it bad enough, we can help you turn your life around. Leading Life Large airs Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Absurd Psychology. Straight answers without all the bull. Hosted by Dr. Gary Bell. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is Karen Treatments for Advanced Alzheimer's Disease. Now, Michael, let's talk about the things that you would like to do and to see done to address the problems we've been talking about, created by high-risk behaviors and serious problems with decision-making in the population of people with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and the like. So, Michael, what more would you like to do to address those problems? Well, many problems are gradually being addressed in one jurisdiction or another. There's you know, we're always comparing ourselves to other places, and some places do a better job. Some places do an awful job. I think ideally what you want is for those who are living with some degree of dementia, which will progress, and families will assume who care enough that they want to provide care, the spectrum of options, the range of options for which care can be provided without barriers that make it impossible should range from home with some help, home with more help, and help means the person and the family that's supporting them, 
because if somebody has to leave their job to help look after the mother, that's a big challenge for most people. So you want to say, let's keep them at home for as long as possible if that's what they want, and make sure that being at home doesn't mean they've become a prisoner in their home because they're not getting any social interaction and activities. That means you have to also have a robust um, uh, um, uh, ability and access to external facilities that may provide some social activity, which is very important. And then when people cannot manage, they should be able to enter a range of facilities from minimalist to maximalist in providing support so that families can not feel that they have to make decisions that are, they're not ready for. So, for example, if you're applying for long-term care and you've made it to the list and a place comes up and you say no, you may bounce to the bottom of the list, which is frightening because, they say, well, what if something happens in the next year? So that's one end. The other, which I think we wanted to address, is if you are in a facility should that facility have to fulfill standards that assure safety and security? To me, that's an obvious answer. Of course, I cannot imagine that there would be the ability of a long-term care facility in any jurisdiction that looks after older people at any level of so-called capacity, just older people who, by the nature of who they are, are frailer and slower because they're elderly to be at risk of a fire. I can't imagine. I mean, houses are supposed to have smoke detectors. They may not have sprinklers, but if you're in a two-story house, that itself can be dangerous, but in a facility, I've gone through enough evacuation drills in our own facility to know how complicated it is. So that, and I remember when our sprinklers have gone off inadvertently, what it means to have a flood that could put out a fire. It's not nice for cleanup, but it sure makes a difference in terms of survivorship. Gotcha. So I would be very much opposed to any loophole that would allow any long-term care facility of any age to not have to meet a standard of fire protection as one example of safety and security. Right. Now, what more would you like to see done by healthcare and social systems? Well, I think in general, and I think we're getting much closer to that, we may not be there, I would like everybody who goes into the healthcare and social service professions, unless they are absolutely certain they're going to do neonatology, um, you know, sports medicine, that if they're going to deal with the general public of which the elderly and the older population make up more and more percentage-wise, they should all be exposed to, even if they're not going to be doing it as their primary professional responsibility, exposed to good um, uh, instruction, knowledge, uh, experience in dealing with the older, frail, and often um, impaired population, because that's the population. That's who goes into general hospitals now, and for sure in long-term care facilities. Right. Now, very last one. What's your message to family caregivers who are concerned about their family members' behaviors or decision-making? What's your message? Well, the first thing is, if you've observed things, 
make good note of them, try to get a timeline, and then get good advice. And good advice means from somebody who's credible. It may start off with your family doctor if you have a credible somebody you trust and say, who can I go to to really help me understand, does mom have the beginning signs and symptoms of dementia? Because if that's the case, then we have to start saying, what should we be doing, if anything, now, and how should we plan for the future? And so planning for something, I just want to make sure I've understood this right. This is planning for problems that we're pretty certain or should be quite certain, are going to go on growing in the individual once yeah. they have made their appearance. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's, there's different kinds of planning. One is for the disease, and the other is, which I have everybody talk about, is what do they want if, and the if is when something terrible and tragic happens, what do they want to happen to them in a very complex healthcare system that can do a lot of things that they may not want? And you want them to be able to make those decisions and participate in the decisions while they still can, so that you as the caregiver and the surrogate are not making decisions on their behalf, not based on what you believe are their wishes and their expressed preferences. There's something you know better than I do called clinical practice guidelines that doctors use, yeah. kind of bit like pilots check sheets mm. and things like that. What about something equivalent like family caregiver guidelines for uh, dementia, for Alzheimer's disease, well, for the very things you've just been talking yeah, about? Yeah, you know, what do you there's think? A, lot of, a lot of stuff written about that. There's no shortage of, of um, written material either from organizations like the Alzheimer's Society that deals with far more than Alzheimer's disease. Um, people write books, as I do. I'm one of them that help people with the decision-making. There are many sources of information for those who want to get information, whether it's online or from libraries, but some people are much better at hearing it, so they go to lectures, they go to information sessions, and they go to their healthcare providers, their doctor, and ask questions. And uh, if you ask enough questions from enough people, you should be able to put together, along with written material that's out there, or listening to programs like you're providing, with some sense of what is going on, what might be, and what you have to start considering. Right. Very good. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this very powerful episode. Uh, episode, very helpful, very informative, and, and I think optimistic in its way in the sense that there's, there are things being done, there's recognition that's growing, there are needs being met. So that's positive. But at the same time, there's no playing down of the challenges that you've been talking about. And as you've stressed, people need support at various stages and in various ways. So thank you. And in regard to all your writing, clinical work, and the, the um, research you do, all I can say is on behalf of all of us, keep up the good work because it matters to everyone. Thank you very I also, much. I also want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Holistic Health for a healthy mouth and body. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk with you then. 
Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.